thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no hollow, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be, until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink, thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not, through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm Susie. Hey, oh no. Oh no, Susie. Lindsay's alter ego at home, Susie. (laughs) Hi, I'm Lindsay. (laughs) It's a pretty funny thing that I like to do to Dan. He'll be like in the shower and I'll walk in. I'm like, hey, he's like, what are you doing? And I'll just stare at him weird. And then he's like, what are you doing? I go, I don't know. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh. And then I go. Is it Susie. I'm Susie. <laughs> I don't know why Susie. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it makes you so uncomfortable, which is my favorite part about all of it. Mm-hmm. You get pretty weird with it. It's, it's great. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. So she's here today. A um, couple announcements that Lindsay's going to take over. And then, um, yeah, and then a big, bigger stories. That's uh, exciting. Mm-hmm. Fun, fun, fun. Okay, well, so this month we are recording in February, but this is the March charity announcement so in case you missed it on the last week's episode this month's charity is new orleans community fridges uh amount to be determined and the community fridges it's a collective effort focused on creating resources that empower people in the community of new orleans and support voices that are marginalized and help remove the stigma around food scarcity it's a really really cool thing anybody in need of food or drink for any reason at any time can visit one of these fridges found all over new orleans and you can just take what you need and if you would like to donate host a fridge or stock a fridge or volunteer your time you can find out more at nocf uh i'm sorry take that i take that back <laughs> uh <laughs> you can go to nolacommunityfridges.org i abbreviated that and then i read it wrong so that's fun and then also an announcement yeah yes Summer camp. Summer camp. Summer camp. So this episode is going to come out on 3-8. So in one week, on 3-15, you will have your chance at 12 noon Pacific time to buy your tickets to the first ever Bad Magic Summer Camp. It's a multi-day, 21 and over adults-only summer camp. It's not that kind of adults-only summer camp, but we are going to have a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, Uh, who who knows what's going to go on behind closed doors? Eek. Oh. There are children that listen to this show. Well, they don't know. Then they shouldn't know. Then those innocent babes shouldn't even know what I'm referring to. <laughs> but it's going to be super fun. It, w- it will be out here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, out on the lake, beautiful campgrounds. There are VIP tickets. There are general admissions tickets. You can get all the information by going to badmagicmerch.com. Look for the uh, Bad Magic Wet Hot Summer Summer Camp banner, and all the info is there. Logan's made it look so cool. All the information is there that you would need, and we're just so excited mm-hmm. to finally be able to do this because we we wanted to do it for the past couple of years, but like, what was that thing that happened? Oh yeah, COVID. Mm-hmm. So here we are. It's finally time. Very excited. <laughs> uh, and now uh, story time. Do you want to do you want to preview your stories first, uh, Lulu, or me? Well, you're just putting me on the spot. Lots of talking. I'll, I'll do it. I'm I'll just do kidding. It. Uh, <laughs> I have two stories. Yeah, and something that I don't think i've ever done yeah i don't think so when you talked about it yeah an entire episode with just one author two stories from the same person same fan unrelated but Mm -hmm. two experiences at different times in their life and 
both stories I think are incredible. Yeah, because you can send in multiple stories. Yeah, and so generally, good reminder for that. Yeah, and generally speaking, I just like pick one or the other, or yeah. I pick one and maybe earmark one for later. Yeah. But these were both really great stories that I was pumped about, so I just took them both and ran with them. Cool. I'm excited to hear them. Oh, good. And, you should be. And I have, uh, yeah, I have two stories. One is uh, a really big one, really wild one. Um, and I'm giving a, a, a rare trigger warning on this show today since examples of uh, suicide, sexual abuse, and murder are present in this, these stories. Wow. Uh, the first is a shorter one and a tale that I promised on a recent episode of the Time Suck podcast when I talked about the 1980 New Mexico prison riot. I said that the now-closed prison has been supposedly haunted ever since that riot, mm -hmm. and today we're going to explore those claims. Okay. Uh, my big second story is the tale of Maurice Theriault, a name that probably rings familiar to a lot of horror film fans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Infamous demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren of the Conjuring Universe uh, were part of an exorcism on Maurice in May of 1985, and this exorcism was referenced at the end of the Nun movie from the Conjuring Makers. In the movie, when at a seminar in Wakefield, Massachusetts, Carolyn Perrin uh, watches as Ed and Lorraine Warren present footage of their attempt to exercise a possessed Maurice. In the footage, Maurice grabs Lorraine, giving her visions of Ed dying, which uh, initiates the Warrens' investigation of the per uh, Perrin farmhouse haunting. An mm. origin kind of tie-in for the first Conjuring movie, uh, the character of Frenchie in The Nun reveals that his real name is Maurice Theriault. And the demon Veloc, uh, who is in the body of the nun, Sister Irene, um, jumps into Maurice. And then Maurice's exorcism is also referenced again in The Conjuring 2. When Ed says that he uh, saw something in an exorcism that took a lot out of his wife. Oh, this is the... This is this is this not is the, the one? this is not the um, basis of that movie. It's just referenced in a few movies, right? But is this the one that took a lot out of her? Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. That's what when, I was yeah, asking. Yeah, yeah. When, he, when he talked, about, yeah, that movie about like mm -hmm. it really took. I a remember. Lot, I'm worried. It took a lot out of her. Uh, he was referencing this exorcism. Okay. So while no Conjuring film has been uh, done about this case specifically, it's like a big part of the universe's lore. Oh, just wait. I'm sure they're setting it up. I know, I know. I, I, I would imagine at some point this mm -hmm. story will come out in that universe. Okay. Uh, first, though, are you ready for me to take you to prison? Uh huh. Okay. Quite a bit of setup. Are we going to wear costumes? We're not going to wear costumes. Oh. Uh, quite a bit of setup. Not very relaxing setup. Uh, some kind of graphic. You okay. Know. Okay. I'll be quiet. Uh, and you're all settled in right with your compression socks? Oh, my God. I was working up a sweat getting these babies on. But look how cute they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is what happens when you post pictures of yourself on Instagram with compression socks on. Everyone knows my old lady legs and my varicose veins need <clears throat> these. So thank uh, you. you. Don't have varicose veins. I do actually. Uh, on February second, nineteen eighty, New Mexicans and people across the country woke that Saturday morning to the news that a riot had broken out in the New Mexico State Penitentiary, south of Santa Fe, and inmates were holding a dozen correction officers hostage. As shocking as the news was, it didn't reveal the true nature of the chaos, brutality, and bloodshed that was already taking place. An almost unimaginable level of violence would be unleashed inside the prison for roughly 36 hours. And the result would be the most condensed period of brutality that has ever taken place inside a U.S. prison. The uprising began at 1.40 a.m. when a few inmates overpowered corrections officers in dormitory E2, taking four of them hostage and seizing their keys. Within minutes, prisoners began opening other dormitories, taking four more corrections officers hostage. By little after 2 a.m., inmates now had smashed their way into the prison control center, gaining access to the entire prison, taking more officers hostage, and beginning to take control of the entire facility. What a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, that, I mean, the episode of Times, like, we get into it heavy, and it, it's unbelievable. It's like the purge. Uh, my stomach hurts just thinking about, like, uh, I don't even mean to take us out of it. I just need to say this, like, every spouse of mm -hmm. those corrections Both. officers, worst fucking nightmare. Yeah. Come true. While no correction officers would be killed... 
Many of them would be tortured and or raped. Oh, God. Somewhere around 200 total inmates would be raped, 33 would be killed, and hundreds of others would suffer serious physical and psychological wounds. Life inside the prison devolved into a true hell on earth. One man was beheaded. Another's, oh, my God. Another's face was burned off <gasps> with an acetylene torch. Actually exploded. Uh, others were beaten to death with pipes. Some had their heads bashed in. Other men were hanged. Some set on fire. Uh, one inmate even had a piece of rebar driven through his head ear to ear. Oh, my God. Much of the facility was destroyed. Life in the prison never the same after the riot. Over the next 18 months following the riot, more violence, two officers, six more inmates would be killed uh, by other prisoners, you know, in further acts of mainly retribution for things that happened during the riot. Jeez Louise. And then ever since 1981, the prison has been supposedly very haunted. <laughs> I bet. Time now for the tale of the shadow people of New Mexico's old main state prison. Screams are heard that seemingly come from nowhere. Uh, it was closed in 1988 or 1998 in the prison. Now it's more of a museum. Uh, there's a minimum security place off-site, but in the old main section of where the riot happened, moving cold spots are felt, uh, the feeling of being watched by something malevolent is experienced often, old cell gates reportedly move on their own, overwhelming feelings of fear, sadness, and or anger often felt near the gas chamber, tool room, and laundry room where a lot of the violence happened. Corrections officers, members of the New Mexico National Guard who worked in the prison following the riot for months due to the facility's destruction, uh, employees who work in the prison gift shop once it became a museum, ghost hunters, tourists going on various prison tours, they have all claimed to have spotted shadowy human shapes wandering or lurking about, typically in cell block four where most of the violence, violence I mentioned earlier occurred during the riot. A local Santa Fe radio show once hosted a Halloween special at Old Main, and they invited a paranormal investigation group to join them. There was no electricity hooked up as the group entered the dark building, but still once inside, they heard cell doors closing one after the other. All of this was caught on audio recorders. They still wonder how it could have happened. That door system is controlled by electricity, but there was no power to close the cell doors when this happened. The doors technically can still be opened and closed manually, but it's very difficult due to their weight due to the metal wheels that they move on being severely corroded with rust and just several decades worth of no maintenance. After hearing the doors move, the group checked to see if they'd actually shut or they were just hearing residual sounds and the cell doors were indeed closed and it took several people pushing and pulling to get them open again. Similarly, a local Albuquerque news crew went on a Halloween tour many years ago, also distinctly heard the doors shut. However, when they went to check, the doors were fortunately still open. And the spooked news crew, one reporter swore she saw some kind of shadow person following her, quickly ran out of the old prison. Several movies have been filmed on the prison ground since it closed, like The Longest Yard, The Astronaut Farmer, Into the West, a variety of independent films. And various people working on these productions have also claimed to have seen and or heard strange phenomena. One anonymous producer working on a film being shot at Old Main said they picked up one of the actors from the airport, wanted to take him to the old prison before shooting the next day so he could get a feel for the place and to maybe do some ghost hunting. By the time they arrived, it was already dark, so they grabbed a couple flashlights. They headed straight for cell block four, the most haunted cell block, and the producer pointed out some marks still on the floor that remained from where one inmate had been decapitated. Then he showed the actor an outline of a man's body who had been tortured with a welding torch. He dared the actor to sit in the old gas chamber. The guy actually agreed, and off they went. As they made their way to the basement chamber, they saw a light at the end of the corridor, found out it was lit with a candle. No one was able to figure out who had lit the candle and placed it there. The candle was sitting on a chair in the room once used for viewing executions. Oh. 
The actor apparently laughed, patted the producer on the back, telling him he had done a nice, thorough job with his prank. The producer was now spooked, but the actor refused to believe it was anything but a joke, and he stepped into the gas chamber and sat down. When he looked towards the viewing room, he saw true horror in the producer's face. The producer was clearly staring at something behind him, so he spun around and saw several dark figures. The actor and producer then fled the prison in terror. No word on how any of that affected the shoot. In another alleged incident, an actress named Sandy said she was working on a film at the prison playing a prisoner. She said that before she ever saw anything, different members of the crew had swore to her they'd seen several shadowy figures. She said they claimed they'd also felt them as well, a bad energy in their midst. Then when filming a scene in the cells, Sandy got locked inside one of them, and it took a while for them to figure out how to get the door back open. After she was free, as she was walking outside, she heard a male voice behind her clearly ask her how she was doing. She thought it was a member of the crew. She said, fine, how are you? And the voice said, fine now. And then when she turned around, no one was anything close to her. Former corrections officer uh, who worked here in the early 1990s named Anthony once shared what he says happened to him in the prison on an episode of the Travel Channel's The Dead Files. He said that paranormal activity was so well known that during his training at the academy, it was addressed specifically to new officers. Anthony was still skeptical, but then he experienced it himself. He said that one day he was escorting three inmates to get linens from the laundry room when as they walked back, they heard a rattling noise. And then when Anthony looked at the source of the noise, he saw a shadowy figure standing in a dark area of the room with them. He initially was worried it was an unsupervised inmate, but when he shined his flashlight at the figure, the beam shone straight through it, and then the shadow creature dissipated. He said a co-worker of his name, Leon, claimed he saw shadow people like that on numerous occasions, and also watched windows open and close on their own. A supposed medium who once toured the prison also claimed to see one of these shadow people, and she claimed it was not a human spirit, but rather something ancient and evil, some kind of devil. She said the entity thrived on the dark energy of the old prison. Did the 36 hours of hell on earth back in 1980 conjure something up from the depths that has remained there to this day? Are some of the spirits of those who died in that riot now trapped with this thing still reliving their horror of their final hours? No one knows, but many seem to agree that something is still serving time in the old former New Mexico prison. Okay, I don't normally listen to Time Suck episodes, not yeah. because it's not a great show. It's just that, like, you're always doing research around me, so I kind of get the gist of it by osmosis for, you know, yeah. for the most part. But I didn't know about that one. I don't think I, yeah, we discussed it at all. Maybe we didn't, And yeah. now I am fascinated, and I feel it's unbelievable. a sick desire to go listen to it. It feels like, you know, staring at a burning car. It, it is ridiculous where, um, and like, I know that you're, it'll freak you out because I know you're freaked out by the Purge movies. Yeah. It's the, yeah, because there's just that element of like, uh, this could happen. It's crazy that it wasn't more publicized. When I think of prison rights, maybe you've heard of Attica. Mm-hmm. Me too. Like I'd heard of Attica. I sure. didn't know a lot about it. Yeah. I, don't, um, I couldn't tell you anything. I was just like, oh yeah, I know that. Yeah. A few more people uh, died in that, and, and it was more publicized, I think, because some guards died, mm. but, it, but almost everybody died when uh, they, in a show of force to take the prison back over. They went in guns blazing, and it was a lot of people got shot. Yeah. This was different where that, – and that was about, like, prisoner rights they were rioting for. Mm-hmm. This was just some maniacs, some very violent maniacs were drunk and just just decided to try and take things over and did. And it was very understaffed, and they turned it into the most unimaginable – I mean, there was other things that happened that I just not – this isn't the right show for it. Yeah. More graphic than the things I even said. Ugh. 
And they were, I mean, they had like, they had roaming death squads going through the prison, uh, taking torches to cut into people's cells who were trying to hide from them and then doing the worst things ever to them. Jesus. Yep. It was just, they just wanted to cause pain. There, there was no, they weren't, they weren't trying to escape. They weren't protesting anything. They just. It was just evil. It was just 36 hours of evil. And was this a maximum security prison? Yes, yes. I'm just trying to think of like but, the type of offenders. I know it was understaffed. I'm just. No, but what was really sad yeah. is because of overcrowding, they were taking people who should have just been in like county. No. Oh, one guy who had some of the worst things happen to him. No. In there for shoplifting. No. Yep. The it, fucking prison system is so fucked. And this was when it was at its I mean, worst. You know, it makes me so like yeah. I could rage about. And as bad as it is now, it was worse. It was an especially bad time. Ugh. And it was the worst example during an especially bad time. No, it's a crazy story. And what are those crazy prison riots that were in Georgia? Yeah, that was more recent. I can't remember the name of them, but I remember coming yeah. across that in the research. Yeah, that was really, and that, but that was more about like prison, prisoner rights, yeah. you know? This was, and this was what was interesting too is, uh, I mean, I could talk forever about it, but it was a rare example where it wasn't inmates versus guards. Mm hmm. It was a small group of especially violent inmates mm -hmm. who just wanted to kill other inmates. Like it was like for some of the inmates who were in there, it's it's a crazy story. It's yeah, a crazy I'm, I'm going to go listen to it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, it took me back. Uh, I'm, I've probably talked about this before, yeah. but in my previous life when I worked in production, one of the shows that I was on, we shot in a prison. Yeah. It was an old abandoned prison. I mean, abandoned, just not in use anymore. And they would, you know, rent it out for production purposes. And there is yeah. something inherently uncomfortable about being in a prison. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was empty. It was brightly lit. Like, do you know what I mean? There was no, but you just go into a cell and, you know, you're just kind of like screwing around and, you know, taking mm -hmm. pictures like in between takes or whatever. Yeah. You're like, oh yeah, well, this is me in prison. But, when you're in there, you're like, yeah. oh my God, well, like this when, is terrifying. When you and I went to Alcatraz, I was just thinking, the cells are so small. So small. So no, small. No windows. Mm -hmm. Well, some of them do, some of them don't, but like. Yeah, many don't. It just, <clears throat> and then like um, this prison that we were shooting in, it was so classic. Yeah. Like, you know, two or three, I think two tiers, you know, so you had like the upstairs like galley mm -hmm. and you could just imagine like a guard walking it, looking down over like this middle area that had the round metal table. Yep. Like it was exactly what you see in a movie. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't know, it, the whole thing made me so uncomfortable. Just mm -hmm. like, A, I never want to do anything that gets me here because yeah. I'm not strong enough to survive this. I know that about myself. And B, what goes on here? And you can just feel like when you were talking about the residual energy of this place yeah. and like maybe it is some old spirit that came back. And I did have this thought and I wonder if you got there as well as like, yes, there were evil people there, but was there already some dark evil spirit energy in mm -hmm. that place that these people, you know, we tend to say on the show that people who are at their weakest. Right. Can be penetrated. Well, maybe that's uh, <laughs> infiltrated yeah. by bad energy right so it's like those few people yeah. that started this horrific scene mm -hmm. were they susceptible to the bad energy that was already there on top of being bad people right and then were they kind of i don't want to say possessed but motivated by it to do what they did i don't know maybe i mean there were like reports like right right after it was over there was one guy who was oh, i can't remember what his position was some higher up maybe I don't think he was a warden, maybe psychologist, but he just talked about how like people they would when they would come in from other prisons, even if they had, were a hardened prisoner, yeah, 
it, it changed them being mm. in this prison specifically. Like there was just, and there's certain parts of this prison. They said like, you just saw a shift in them. It was just, um, it, it was, it was like, even skeptics were like, there's just something wrong with this place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I like that you brought that up about even skeptics were like, ah, this yeah. place. I mean, for bad energy. Yeah. For all of our back and forth about mm -hmm. what is or isn't and debates, you know, crystals or yeah. entities, all that. We all know that person that we've met in life or just right. encountered in like a parking lot or yeah. in a restaurant that we're like, man, they have bad juju. Yeah. yeah. And that that's a very real feeling. Mm-hmm. Ugh. God, this story's gonna really upset me. Okay. I have a few pictures. Okay. Excuse me. This first one is the old uh, New Mexico State Penitentiary, you know, just uh, after the riot, after it was kind of, you know, shut down, just a, a view from the outside. Yeah. I mean, and, it's typical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then this uh, next one is uh, Carnage from the Riot. Oh, in my gosh. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, they destroyed it. They destroyed this place. I mean, like the gymnasium was burned to the ground. I mean, they just, it's crazy. Next one is a picture of one of the prison cells after the riot. You can see the noose where one of the inmates was hanged. God. And some of that darkness in the back is blood. Uh... And then uh, this last one is a picture from Santa Fe Ghost and History Tours .com. Taker of the photo, of course, claims they didn't doctor it, but it's just like it's 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 a little grainy. But when you look at it in the right, uh, mm -hmm, like it's mm -hmm. like is there a figure, a humanoid shape, shadowy in there? I know you can kind of. They saw it like when they were seeing it with their own eyes. You know, like it like it felt it, saw it, mm -hmm. and then that was the image that was captured. But there's lots of. It's interesting. That there's lots of claims of specifically like shadow entities in this yeah. place. Oh, I bet. I mean. When you're violently murdered, yeah, I think you're more likely to stick around. I think we've kind of had that mm -hmm. conversation a variety of times, you know, like yeah. Teresita uh, Bassa. Bassa. Yeah. I almost said Teresita Bonita. I think I do that all the time with Teresita her Teresita Chiquita Bonita. Exactly. But, you know, when something like that happens yeah. to you, I think that you want to come. Th there's more likelihood that you would want to come back and explain what happened to you and find some peace. Yeah. Yeah. Blah. Ugh. What episode of Time Suck is it? Was that recent? Uh, it was recent. Okay, um, I'll have to look it up. Yeah, just in the last few. Okay. Okay. I, I know a guy who can help me find it. <laughs> um, so now it's time to leave New Mexico behind, head to the East Please. Coast to explore the uh, full story that is touched on in some of the Conjuring movies, the tale of the demonic possession of Maurice Theriault, before telling it time for a quick sponsor break. Thanks for listening to our sponsors, Creeps and Peepers. This following story, uh, I will say it takes a bit to get going. But, okay. it get, but it gets real, real intense towards the end. Some twists uh, that I don't want to give away. Um, so stay with it. A little bit of setup before we delve into its you know, paranormal aspects. Maurice Theriault was born in 1936 in Van Buren, Maine, tiny town on the Canadian border. His parents were Felipe and Alice Theriault, and he had a difficult childhood. Most of his days were full of hard manual labor. He often missed school for weeks at a time during the planting and harvesting seasons, leaving him little time for his studies. Such little time that Maurice was still in the third grade at the age of 13. Oh. His father was physically and emotionally abusive to all his children, but especially towards Maurice. When young Maurice failed to do whatever it was his father wished, his father would often lash out with a stinging smack to the face or a humiliating kick in his ass. And something more sinister was going on, something that Maurice would never fully explain. One day in the fall of 1946, when Maurice had come home from school, so he's around 10 years old, to help with the fall harvest, he went into the barn to find his father and saw something that scarred him for life. Maurice never revealed any specific details regarding exactly what he witnessed. Most people assume he saw his father performing some kind of deviant sexual act. Ugh. He only said that when he saw what his father was doing, he was shocked, his jaw dropped, his eyes opened wide. At the time, he wasn't quite sure what his father was even doing, but he knew it was wrong and that he shouldn't be there. 
He tried to slip quietly away, knocked over a pitchfork on his way out of the barn. He was spotted. Now his father ordered him to also participate in whatever act was being committed. And he threatened to kill his son and bury him in a manure pit if he, did, if he didn't do it or t if he told anyone. So Maurice said he cried when it was all over, not sure what it was that he'd just done, but understood that it was evil. Maurice kept his participation in this act a secret for years. It didn't just happen once. Whatever it was, it went on for quite some time. And Maurice felt so ashamed, he soon no longer felt comfortable inside his local church or even looking at a cross. Then in 1950, Maurice later stated that his increasingly troubled relationship with his father led him directly into some kind of relationship with the paranormal. Time now for the tale of the demonic possession of Maurice Derialt. Maurice and his father were working in the fields together one day when Maurice struggled to start the tractor. His impatient and frustrated father, Felipe, pushed him off, and Maurice hit his head on a large rock hard enough to open up a gash and began to bleed. Felipe didn't care, didn't bother to even say anything, let alone check on his son, coldly drove the tractor away. Maurice now shouted at his retreating father, I'd rather work for the devil than work for you. It felt good to finally speak out against Felipe. As his dad drove the tractor farther and farther away, Maurice repeated the phrase over and over, louder and louder. I'd rather work for the devil. I'd rather work for the devil. The next day, for the first time ever, Maurice had no trouble starting the tractor. Normally, his legs were slightly too short for the task, but today they seemed impossibly longer. Maurice could also do previously difficult farm chores with ease. His strength had seemingly instantaneously increased and would continue to increase over the following months. He was still uh, you know, just 14, but could now work like a grown man. Maurice continually gave thanks to whatever he felt was helping him. It often felt like he was no longer alone, ever. Something else was always there, assisting him, comforting him. Felipe forced Maurice to now drop out of school at age 14 and work on the farm full-time. Maurice became seriously depressed. School had been such a needed escape for him. But thankfully, he thought he was not alone. He felt the presence of this other still with him. It gave him strength to get through a few more terrible years. On July 13, 1954, Maurice's 18th birthday, he went to the Army recruiting office downtown and enlisted. He felt it was finally his time to leave his terrible younger life behind. His father, Felipe, was furious, drove into town to pressure a doctor into writing a note stating that Maurice didn't pass his physical, even though apparently he did. The note ended his recruitment chances, and Maurice, with no other work opportunities, remained at home. He was devastated, but again, he was not alone, so he could endure more. When he was 21, he finally packed his bags and left, told his mother he was going to Connecticut to work in some kind of factory. Before he left, Maurice looked at his father's favorite chair, thought of how much he hated the man who sat there and said aloud, I swear I hate you, you bastard, curse you. I hope the devil takes his pitchfork and sticks it in your heart. Maurice worked in the factory for only a few months before returning to Maine to reunite with his childhood friend, Christine Harper. The two eloped, moved to Holyoke, Massachusetts a few months later. Maurice found work there and the couple would go on to have three children together. Maurice still felt uncomfortable around religious iconography. And in Massachusetts, this began to manifest itself in some pretty intense ways. When Maurice and Christine were arguing one night, they saw the crucifix, crucifix in their bedroom start to bleed. Maurice told her to ignore it. He said it in a way, he said it in a way that made Christine believe this had happened before. The next week they had another argument. Once again, they both saw a crucifix begin to bleed. Christine recited the Lord's prayer and the blood disappeared. After continuing to argue more and more and experience more disturbing incidents like this, Maurice and Christine will split up a year later. A few years afterwards, Maurice will marry a woman named Erica, and he'll be together with her for nine years. Maurice never told Erica about any of the strange things that had happened to him before. She'll experience her own unusual events soon enough. One evening, Maurice almost killed both Erica and himself in a car accident. He'd fallen into some sort of trance while he was driving, refused to steer. 
He later said he had no memory of where he went in his head. Said he felt like he uh, came out of a deep sleep only to realize they were about to get into a wreck. Other strange incidents followed. Shortly after the trance episode, their pet beagle Peter died unexpectedly. Maurice said Peter was hit by a car. But then Erica found Maurice's bloody pickaxe near the alleged accident site. Maurice loved Peter, sobbed when he buried him, but she was convinced he'd killed him. Why would he do that? Erica also now caught Maurice beating his riding horse one day, confronted him about it. Maurice insisted he'd never hit the horse, that he hadn't done what she had just witnessed him doing. More really strange incidents like this occur, and then Erica eventually tells Maurice he desperately needs to see a psychologist. When he refuses, she leaves and never comes back. 1979, Maurice decides to move to Greenfield, New York. He's hired to work on a man named Simon Junit's farm, and it was there where he'd meet his third wife, Nancy. Maurice and Nancy later consider purchasing a farm in Warren, Massachusetts, and when Nancy says they should pray about the purchase, Maurice kind of loses it. He looks at Nancy with hate in his eyes, pushes her off the porch, rips her cross necklace off, and throws it in the woods. Then he starts muttering over and over, I have her by the hand, I have her by the hand, I have her by the hand. Maurice will later claim no memory of this incident. Next night, he finds and returns the cross, tells Nancy a lady in white took him and led him to it. Felt like it was the spirit of Nancy's mother. Somehow, Maurice and Nancy stay together after this, and they go through with the purchase of the farm. Maurice will now work as a tomato farmer, selling produce to tourists and townspeople from a little wooden stand at the edge of the road. June of 1982, an officer knocks on Maurice's front door. All he will say is that there was an accident, there has been an accident, and he needs to call his sister. Maurice calls and receives devastating news. Here's where things start to really ramp up. Maurice's parents, Felipe and Alice, were found dead in their home in Choctaw, Oklahoma. The police ruled it as a murder-suicide. Felipe's father had shot his wife, his mother, then shot himself in the chest. That night, Maurice had a terrible nightmare. In his dream, he was his mother, and he saw through Alice's eyes as she sat in her bedroom facing her husband the night he killed her. In his dream, his father Felipe chants unintelligible words, some language not familiar to Maurice in any way, in some sort of gibberish nursery rhyme. He recites various demonic names, calls himself toys. Felipe tells his wife, we are the devil. Then he said, we are going to kill you. Then we are going to kill this disgusting worm that we have used for so many years. Don't you think that will be a fitting conclusion to all the years we've tortured you and your family? We've even tortured him, if truth be told, which it can be now, so now his time is over. We're going to kill you, then we're going to kill the worm. The police will come and rule it a murder-suicide. What else could it be? After that, we will go and pay a visit to your dear son, Maurice. Felipe then began to savagely beat Alice and curse at her. She begged him to stop, asked why he wanted to kill her. Why not? We, we were invited in. Didn't this worm we are inhabiting like to curse everyone and everything? Didn't your son invoke our name? I'd rather work for the devil." Felipe grabbed the gun, held it over her. Alice began to recite the Lord's Prayer, but was dead before she finished. Maurice tried to brush the dream off as just a horrible nightmare, but deep down, he worried that some or all of it was true. Then on New Year's Day, 1983, something new happened, something incredibly strange. I don't know what other word to use for it, and this will happen in more instances than I will reveal in this story, but I will reveal a few of these instances. Nancy witnesses two different Maurice's. She was sitting with her husband in the living room when he wouldn't answer her question about the coming snow. And then she turns her head around, looks back for him, and he's gone. She recruits her daughter Jenny to search for Maurice, and when they call for him, he pops out from behind the barn door. Nancy then notices footprints coming towards the house, but none had been leaving from the house. Maurice insists he'd been in the barn all day. Maurice then leaves Nancy, goes into the kitchen, but then just a literal second or two later, he walks back out with a steaming cup of coffee. He hadn't been in there even close to long enough 
to boil water or make the coffee. He also didn't have any snow on him, despite just supposedly being outside moments before. Nancy asked Maurice what was going on. He looked at her confused, then answered her earlier question about the coming snow. He also eventually tells her this was not the first time this sort of thing had happened. He'd been spotted in two different places at the same time before by his ex-wives. Nancy now starts keeping track of everything in a notebook that she'd kept under the bed. In 1984, Maurice asked her to show him this book. She shocked to find it charred. Nothing burnt around it, but everything she'd written had been burned away. Maurice insists he didn't burn it. Nancy is now convinced Maurice, uh, or Nancy now convinces Maurice to visit Father Galen Beardsley at a local Catholic church. At the time, Beardsley doesn't believe that any type of spiritual affliction is behind the troubling incidents, doesn't offer any type of assistance. But visiting the priest does seem to accelerate whatever the hell was happening to Maurice. A string of three unexplained fires now break out. The first fire burns her storage shed to the ground. Two weeks later, Maurice's vegetable stand spontaneously bursts into flames. A third fire takes place in Nancy's daughter, Jenny's bedroom, in the middle of the night. No cause can be determined in any of these instances. The next possible paranormal event would happen in December of 1984. Maurice and Nancy decided to decorate their house for Christmas. Maurice built a wooden cross that he planned to mount on the roof. Climbed up his ladder, nailed the cross to the roof, climbed down to get some lights. On his way back up, he felt the ladder start to shake as if someone were grabbing it, trying to knock him off of it. Every time he tried to get on the roof, a force shook the ladder. Finally tries to climb again in spite of the shaking, the force throws him from the ladder. Uh, climbs again, now the ladder pushes away from the house. Maurice falls hard enough to open up a cut on his head. Tries another time, makes it halfway up before falling again. This time he gets caught in some Christmas lights, and now on the ground he claims the lights start to tighten on their own around his neck. Maurice said he screamed, get away from me, leave me alone, and the lights loosened. Odd incidents keep happening like this in 1985. Nancy contacts Father Beardsley again, asks for help. Father Beardsley had found a book titled The Demonologist by Ed and Lorraine Warren. At a loss for what to do, he wasn't sure an exorcism was necessary. He wasn't an exorcist himself. He wondered if these paranormal investigators could perhaps help Maurice and Nancy. Meanwhile, while he's looking for this book, finding the book, Nancy calls again. Maurice had once more appeared in two places at the same time. On this occurrence, Nancy and her daughter Jenny was sitting in the living room watching TV when Maurice walked in wearing jeans and an undershirt. He went out the front door. Nancy told him he should put on a coat. Jenny ran to get her own coat, and when she passed by the bedroom, she screamed. Maurice was in there sitting on the bed, putting on his shoes. Oh, man. Only a few seconds passed between these two sightings. Maurice insisted he hadn't left the room yet. Which one was the real Maurice? Were they both somehow the real Maurice? Father Beardsley now called Ed and Lorraine Warren, Tells him all about these weird occurrences in the Theriault home. Ed and Lorraine come to the home on February 18, 1985 to investigate. When they arrive, Maurice is sitting at the table, staring off into space, lost in another trance. Nancy spends a couple hours telling them everything she's remembered. As Nancy spoke, something new and crazy happens. Maurice's eyes begin to bleed. He later said this had happened other times when he'd been privately recalling upsetting events in his life. He now tells Ed and Lorraine everything, including the life moment he felt may have led to what was happening now, when he said he'd rather work for the devil. He wondered if he had somehow invited something into his life then. Ed and Lorraine met with Father Beardsley. Ed informed the priest that Maurice was possessed. The first time anyone had used that word to describe what was happening. On February 24th, 1985, more disturbing weirdness. Maurice turns in his rifles to the local police department, voluntarily. Nancy tells the officers that she was the only one allowed to come back and retrieve the guns. Maurice explained that if he showed up to the station, he may look like himself, but he might not really be himself. What the hell is going on here? 
few days later, local police chief Jerry Siebert is dispatched to the Theriault farmhouse. Nancy had called 911 screaming for help. She was afraid for herself and her three grandchildren. State trooper Colin Kearns accompanies Siebert. Nancy opens the door when they arrive. Her face is tear-stained. She's shaking. He's in there, she said quietly. Be careful. Maurice was sitting at the kitchen table with a dazed expression, his beard streaked with blood. Siebert asked him what was wrong. I don't know. I don't know, he said. Nancy pointed to the bathtub floor. Officer Kearns approached the tile floor and the bathtub smeared with blood. It took some convincing, but Nancy agreed to tell them where the blood came from. Uh, Maurice went to the bathroom after breakfast. When he didn't come out after a while, she knocked on the door. She heard bizarre sounds, quote, open the door. Maurice was lying in a pool of blood, his face contorted beyond recognition, lying on his back in a fetal position, gyrating like a top. His, his tobacco-stained teeth bared in a wolfish grimace. His eyes rolled back in his head. Only the whites were visible. He was emitting a mournful wail, babbling what seemed to be words, but were not in a language his wife could understand. Red froth bubbled from the corners of his mouth. Nancy dragged him out of the bathroom. As soon as she touched him, he calmed down, but continued babbling. Police Chief, uh, Police Chief Siebert doesn't believe any of this is the work of the devil at first. He thinks Maurice is faking a mental breakdown until he sees blood start to drip from Maurice's eyes and bloody lines on his back now form into the upside-down symbol of a cross. Ugh. Now he knows that something terrible is going on, but he still doesn't want to accept it's paranormal. He wonders, as does Officer Kearns, if Nancy is hurting her husband somehow. She insists she is not. She also tells him that this wasn't the only frightening and hard-to-explain thing that had happened with Maurice in recent days. She said that she'd witnessed Maurice fly across the room like he'd been hit by a car. She'd watched his face morph into something unrecognizable, demonic. She'd seen him lift part of their tractor off the ground by himself. And she kept seeing Maurice appearing in multiple places at once. She told Chief Siebert to call Father Beardsley if he didn't believe her. Siebert does call Beardsley. Beardsley believes Maurice's problems are real. He informs Siebert that he has called in Ed and Lorraine Warren for help. Beardsley and the Warrens now believe an exorcism is necessary, but the church refuses to perform one unless a Catholic psychiatrist evaluates Maurice first. The psychiatrist who interviews Maurice doesn't believe anything he says regarding all the strange events that have been happening for years and, and things that multiple people had witnessed. He also doesn't believe in the concept of demonic possession. Maurice and the Warrens storm out of the church. And as soon as they leave the church parking lot, Maurice screams in pain. Maurice pulls up his shirt, takes it off. Everyone present can see the symbol of an upside-down cross has been burned into the flesh in his back. My God. Ed walks him back into the church to show the psychiatrist who still doesn't believe what he's being shown. He insists somehow Maurice has done this to himself. They'd hit a dead end, it seemed, when it came to the church officially approving an exorcism. On March 21st, 1985, this weird case uh, now first gets reported on in the press story in the Springfield Morning Union. The next day, the Boston Herald also runs a story on the case. The Boston Herald had contacted Chief Siebert, who said that he would tell them everything when the time was right. He said, and there are some things that I will tell you that will make your hair stand on end. The story was soon reprinted in numerous publications, makes national headlines. People now began to drive to Maurice's house just to call the Theriot's devil worshippers. Some locals want them to get out of town. Just after Easter Sunday, Father Beardsley invites the Theriots to church and meet, uh, to meet Bishop Harrington to try and finally get the church on board and get this exorcism done. They tell their story. Bishop Harrington does not authorize an exorcism, but does offer to say a prayer for Maurice. During the prayer, Maurice's forehead begins to swell. His eyes take on a sadistic gleam. He begins to speak in a deep voice. I am in the depth of this man's soul, and I will have it. You cannot destroy me. You cannot make me leave. Bishop Harrington continues praying, douses Maurice with holy water. Maurice leaves feeling somewhat comforted, but things don't get better. They get worse. 
Objects are now flying around the house somewhat regularly, shattering vases, pictures. Maurice sees his own doppelganger in the mirror for the first time. His reflection does not quite mirror him. He's terrified. Ed comes back to the house a few days later. He finds a tearful Maurice, who said he was planning on hanging himself. He said if Ed hadn't showed up, he was going to do it. The Warrens worry they don't have much time left to save him. The next day, Nancy finds herself searching for her husband. She thought she'd found him in the greenhouse, but it wasn't quite Maurice who she encountered. She called out his name and she said, Maurice didn't reply, but bent over suddenly and straightened up, his face twisted in a sadistic leer. His brow became distended, ape-like. His eyes were infernal. The greenhouse was filled with a terrible odor. Nancy gasped. Whatever was staring at her was definitely not her husband. Nancy reached for her cross and said, I command you to leave in the name of Jesus Christ, and Marie screamed in agony. She said his head drew back, opened his mouth, which to Nancy's horror did not have a circle as anyone's mouth would have, but made the form of a square. Blood gushed forward out of this bizarre opening, spraying the floor of the greenhouse, uh, splattering sawhorses. Maurice then collapsed in a heap. Bishop Harrington contacted again. Still no exorcism, but now he sends Catholic healers to help Maurice. They begin to say prayer over him, and Maurice stiffens up, begins laughing in a deep voice. Blood and a yellow glue-like substance start to drip from his mouth. Ugh. Ed and Lorraine continue to push for an exorcism. Still, Bishop Harrington refuses. So the Warrens now call Father Delaney, a Catholic priest they were familiar with who was a faith healer. He agreed to work with Maurice, but refused to call it an exorcism. When he prayed over Maurice, he stiffened up. The same blood, yellow pus, dripped from his mouth. And then this insane situation escalated again. One night, Nancy and Maurice are saying Hail Marys together when Nancy feels as if she is being choked. She can't breathe. Strong, invisible hands are around her neck. She looks at Maurice, who is sitting in bed next to her, a big smile on his face, staring at her, his hands in his lap. Before she passes out, the choking sensation goes away and is replaced by a feeling of dread. She's now convinced that if they don't do something soon, they were both going to die. Ed now tells Bishop Harrington that they were going to conduct their own exorcism, with or without the, the official church permission. They contact their friend Bishop Robert McKenna, uh, a separate, oh, this is a tough word, Seta uh, Privationist, Seta privation, Privationist Bishop, formerly of the Dominican Order. It would take a bit to explain what a Seta Privationist is, uh, so here's the extremely condensed answer. They're basically someone who didn't agree with changes that occurred during the Second Vatican Council in the mid-1960s. And now they think the Pope is still the Pope but he doesn't get to call all the shots until he agrees to reverse changes made during that council. Uh, this is an especially conservative branch of uh, Catholicism. The church modernized during that council a bit. Some people didn't like it, like Bishop McKenna. So that's why McKenna could go rogue and conduct an exorcism that other Catholics wouldn't. McKenna's exorcism will take place on May 2nd, 1985. To begin, Maurice is sitting in a chair in the middle of the living room. Bishop McKenna starts to pray in Latin. Maurice's eyes seemingly instantly begin to drip blood. Everyone present starts to hear a banging noise coming from Maurice's bedroom, a room that was supposedly currently empty. Everyone was now too scared to check and be sure. The banging noise grows louder, 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 until it suddenly stops. Then something equally, if not more terrifying, begins. Everyone now begins to hear human voices whispering in the kitchen, which they can see is empty, devoid of living people at least. Bishop McKenna prays for the spirit to reveal itself, and now while the whispering continues, the banging starts up again, so loud it's hard to hear the bishop's prayers over it. Maurice's nose starts to bleed. The symbol of the cross suddenly appears burnt into both of his hands. His eyes roll back into the back of his head. The smell of blood and sweat fills the room. When McKenna makes the sign of the cross on Maurice's forehead, he begins groaning like an animal. 
His face turns red, then brownish gray. Then according to the Warren's later account of all of this, it transforms into something not human. His nose grows wider, deep lines form across his forehead, his eyes turn to slits. As the Warrens wrote, the reptilian face that now regarded the bishop with twisted malice did not look like any human being that they had ever seen. Maurice, or whatever had fully taken hold of Maurice, then stood up out of the chair. All the men present managed to push him back down, takes great strength. His incredible strength borders on superhuman at this point. McKenna now asks for the demon to identify itself, and Maurice answers in a deep voice, I am what I am! I am the only one! McKenna goes back to praying fervently. He waves the crucifix in front of Maurice, and when he does, it seems as if a miracle happens. Maurice stirs as if coming out of a deep sleep. His face returns to normal. He's no longer in a trance. He seems completely and totally at peace, himself again, no longer tormented by some evil presence. The real Maurice stands up, hugs Nancy. He feels euphoric as Father McKenna finalizes, uh, finalizes the exorcism, profusely thanks everyone present, and the Warrens and Father McKenna walk away feeling grateful. They felt they'd been part of a God winning some great spiritual battle. And the battle had been won, maybe, or maybe something was tricking them. Uh, it had been won for the moment. All was well until July 1985. Now things take a much darker turn. On this day, something truly, truly tragic is discovered. Something either not at all paranormal or at the very least not just paranormal. Chief Siebert finds evidence that Maurice had been raping his stepdaughter Jenny. Uh, she told her biological father, reporter who reported to authorities, according to the girl, it was not Maurice who had raped her, only someone who looked like Maurice, as in the strange doppelganger that had kept showing up. No authorities believe her, but the DA's office is still on the fence about pressing charges due to an overall lack of evidence. Chief Siebert convinces them to file charges anyways, possession or not, of serious crime had been committed, could not go unpunished. He decides to go to the house and arrest Maurice. Maurice denies ever abusing his stepdaughter, requests a lawyer. Then when Siebert is filling out some of the arrest paperwork, he alleged later that blood began to drip from Maurice's mouth and nose. And then Maurice told Siebert in a strange, inhuman voice, you and I are going to be together for a long time. Siebert, who had by now come to believe that something demonic was at play, took out an old bottle of holy water, doused Maurice. Maurice fell into convulsions. Very surprisingly, at least to me, according to the Warren's account, the DA's office now drops all charges once they obtain a copy of the exorcism. Also, though, Maurice's stepdaughter chose not to testify. I'm guessing that led to the DA to drop charges more than the account of the exorcism. Despite the rapes of Nancy's daughter, Maurice and Nancy remain together, will stay together for seven more years. They'll continue to farm and sell pumpkins, squashes, tomatoes, until that business venture eventually fails. They move into a house in town, all is supposedly peaceful for a few more years, and then another final horrible twist. November 4th, 1992, Maurice Theriault completed suicide. He shot himself after also shooting Nancy. Oh no! Nancy had filed a restraining order against him weeks earlier on October 13th, sought separation. Then on November 4th, Maurice breaks into Nancy's house, shoots her with a shotgun, turns the weapon on himself, shoots himself in the mouth. Nancy, who had been shot in the left arm and torso, staggered out the door, collapsed on her neighbor's front porch. She was rushed to the hospital where she was treated for her wounds, thankfully survived. The disturbing repeat of the 1982 murder-suicide of Maurice's, Maurice's parents brings up further questions. Was Maurice really cured after that exorcism, or was he still plagued by some sort of demon inside of him? And was the nightmare he'd had after learning about his parents' death really some kind of vision into what had actually occurred? Remember some of the final words he dreamt his demonically possessed father had said to his mother before killing her and then himself. The police will come and rule it as a murder-suicide. What else could it be? After that, we will go and pay a visit to your dear son, Maurice. Was a demonic visit 
truly paid. <sighs> That's a lot of years. A lot mm -hmm. of years of just being tormented. Yeah, that's a wild, wild story. Oh, there's so many elements of mm -hmm. paranormal pieces that we hear in other stories that singularly mm -hmm. are terrifying. And then you push it all together, combine it into one person's whole life story, and it's just so stressful and awful. Yeah, I, I can't remember um, hearing uh, about like a prolonged doppelganger stuff woven into a demonic possession story. I know. That was wild. Surprised me. Yeah. And I mean, for <clears throat> the daughter, for Jenny to say. Oh, my God. I mean, but for her to somehow know that it wasn't Maurice is such a specific detail. Yeah. Because in those situations so where something, I mean, like, from my own experiences of horrible things happening in my life. Yeah. It's like. You're you're pretty aware of who is completing this act, yeah. And unless you're, you know, severely drugged, and even then, you know, there's only so much that the brain can block out. So yeah. for her to somehow know in her gut right. that it wasn't really her, her, her Maurice, her yeah, stepdad. Yeah. Oh my god, that is wild. And she yeah, I've never must, heard of something like that. Oh my god! And then the amount of fucked upness that she must have. <sighs> Like I can't imagine. Yeah, I just focused on her so much for a minute of like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. you are screwed for life. <sighs> Hopefully, good therapy. Uh, I mean, you could—I don't know—you could EMDR yeah. your way out of that, possibly, maybe some DMT. But man, I have a few photos. Yeah, the first one's Maurice, and third and final wife Nancy. Okay. And then, uh, yep. So I mean, just yeah, whatever. Just looks like regular old people, right? Uh, <laughs> like two farmers. Yep. Next one, not great image quality, but this is a photo from the exorcism. Uh, okay. Of Maurice Theriault. Okay. With Father McKenna and the Warrens there. Uh, there was close-ups of his face that looked kind of weird, but they were so grainy, I didn't include them. They're well, just, right, because then once you put them on the screen, yeah, it just doesn't worse. transfer. But you guys can Google it. Uh, here's a fun uh, little image coming up of the demon Valak, who the Warrens thought may have possessed Maurice. <clears throat> Maurice, excuse me. Oh, God. Right? And Hollywood's nod to the story. That comes from The Conjuring oh, 2. Oh, God. I don't like that. Yeah, in The Conjuring universe, that demon is the demon inside of Maurice. Well. Ah. I, just, I can't look. Is it over? <laughs> yep. Okay. So many things in that story. What's the matter? Uh, no, I'm just looking at that little painting of Malak above you. Well, that's not Malak. That's me. Yeah, but it's like a combo. It's a hybrid. I was making sure the eyes weren't moving. This one? Mm-hmm. Yikes. Yikes. I know. But you can see my face in it. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine just like looking at a painting like that, like I'm looking right now, and all of a sudden the eyes just go, just like just a little fixate on you, a little shift, or maybe blink. It would be enough to send me to the nut house. Oh my god, yeah, ye, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I had so many notes, but the weird blackouts that he would have really threw me. Yeah, those trances. Yeah, like he like the driving and having the trance, or just like sitting at the kitchen table, and then his eyes bleeding, and like I don't know. Yeah, the just, bleeding eyes ooh, freaked me out. So much so. Mm-hmm. A lot of bleeding eyes, and then, yeah, a lot of that, that doppelganger. Yeah, and the bleeding crucifixes early on, and then the, the upside-down crosses on his back. There were just so yeah. many things. I got so mad at the church during this. I'm like, you fuckers. Well, you help know, this man. Well, there is a thing, I mean— I mean, I've come across it in so many stories now where, you know, the Catholic Church is most associated with, you know, exorcisms, uh, having like, you know, like 
exorcisms that have been done by Protestant ministers, mm-hmm. but they have like you know the the more like official rites. It's a whole thing. It's a whole process. Yeah, they they have official like, exorcists. There's like training. Some, I was just gonna say mm-hmm. what some special training on like how to like protect yourself yeah. while also helping somebody. Well, in the Catholic Church is just so much more formalized than any you know Protestant equivalent. Right. You know, there's way more rules, way more tradition, uh, a much bigger hierarchy. Yeah. Tell me about it. I yeah. grew up in it. Mm-hmm. I know. So you got to go through all these channels. And I and I and there was pushback. You know, for for many years in the mid to late 20th century, where they wanted to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. and they and they, you know, there was there was a, a like a, a movement within the Catholic Church to not believe in exorcisms, right? And to think that was medieval and it was nonsensical, and uh, that's not how God operated. That's not how like the devil could kind of take you. And so, as if you would know, okay? Well, if you're a be- all of it, all of that I is, know. is like as if you would know, yeah. Well, right, but like if you're a believer in God, yeah. if that's your happy place, sure. Like you, you don't have any definitive authority over how the devil operates any more than you have a definitive authority on how God operates. You don't. A lot of fucking, people believe that. I know it's just so. <laughs> I mean, you know how I feel about religion in yeah. general, but like it's just so illogical to think that you would know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's, but there, yeah, but there is a lot of stories specifically within Catholicism of you know the church being very reticent to agree to participate in something that they think could make them look foolish. Well, think about it. It's like what? It's 2022, and just last year, uh, who's our pope right now? Francis. I don't, even, I don't even remember. Like he finally is like relaxing some stances on uh, same-sex marriage and trying. He's trying to be like a more modern pope because mm-hmm. the Catholic community is just like whoop, dwindling. Yeah, yeah. It's no a, one wants to be a priest. I mean, it's way, way, way more difficult now. No, it's it's still. Fairly dominant in like South America, yep. parts of like middle, you know, Central America, a few European countries, mm-hmm. you know, but like, but in uh, much of the rest of the world, its numbers are dropping pretty, pretty quick. There's still like Philippines, there's still like some holdouts. Yeah, yeah. But like in America, for sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember that even when I went to Gonzaga, you know, uh, 20 years ago, a little mm-hmm. over 20 years ago now, where they were having a hard time finding young men to go into the seminary then. Right. You know, most of the priests I had for professors, I mean, they were old old well sure like in on, in their last years yeah my brother and i were just talking about this we had a, a family friend pass away yeah this past week and my brother said he's like oh yeah he's like i was at the funeral he's like you're never gonna believe who walked in i said he goes father dave and i was like that man was old as dirt when i was a kid like i said jason i'm like are you sure it was him his face he, is keeping him alive he's like Lindsay. He still looks exactly the same walking with the cane. I was like, well, God loves him. I mean, but we were just kind of like cracking up because it's like that was the pastor of the church that I grew up in. And when we were growing up in the church, right? So I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. I mean, I was in the church from zero to 18. There was only ever one new priest. And I don't ever remember him being that young. I mean, young, Father Donnelly, but like. I bet he was like 40, you know, because I'm trying to think of like my kid brain, you know, they seem so much older, but like that was so many years ago. Mm -hmm. And then we had one other, um, oh my God, he's, it's not, it's not when you're a priest, you're a a deacon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but he could be married and have children and like the whole thing. So it was very, very different, but you just don't see that happening anymore. I don't know. Our kids, I mean, Mm -hmm. We're open to whatever they want to pursue, but like one of our kids is like hardcore atheist and one of them is hardcore agnostic. And that's at a young age. I didn't even know what those terms meant. Yeah, I just reacted yeah, to a different, different world. Different. 
The, the church is doing a thing. It's interesting. I thought it was interesting to keep a lot of these priests alive longer. A uh, lot of testosterone HGH therapy. A lot of the mm, sure. uh, priests are on like these new regiments. They're, I, they're mandated. I saw this coming. <laughs> Damn it. I was sitting on it. I was trying. And okay. I just know like your voice and your shift. <laughs> so I wanted to paint a picture so bad. I wanted you so badly to believe. That, like, 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 like he's like Jack. Yeah. Like, like, like the Pope, like the Pope has mandated uh-huh. like just a super buff Pope. Oh my God. And a super buff like legion of like older priests who are like going into their nineties and, but they're fucking jacked. Did you ever watch on HBO? The, was it the young Pope, the Pope with um Jude law? No, I heard it was fantastic. It is. I watched like, season one and i don't know why he's a great actor but it is so dark and so good we should go back and watch it i would watch it yeah i don't know what i was watching well who knows there's so many things to be watching right now we're watching what inventing anna Hmm? the anna delvey story which got terrible reviews but i'm loving it yeah we're only like i think we're one and a half episodes and we're just watching like half episode by half episode yeah i don't well we get tired quick because we're old (laughs) all right well do you have a squishy? Oh, no, I don't. <gasps> See, this is what happens when you set up. I can oh. help. Where do I go? Okay, Joe, <laughs> let me tell you what to do. When you come in, go in that box on top of the... I forgot to grab one. Reach in and grab one. All right, let's go with something new. Okay. Okay. Okay, we're going to get, get a little go? new guy. Oh, we're in here. Okay, here's a rubber monster. Okay, a rubber, rubber monster. monster. Uh, oh, well, this guy's not new, but he's been a long time. Oh, oh yeah. Squishy, eyeball guy. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. He's excited. I yep, think, he is pumped. I think the last time you had him, you did some weird like, oh no, did you break him? Why no, is only no, one eye going? No, you do both. You can, oh, just, you can just manipulate it. Be nice to him. He's got a headache. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, thanks, Joe. She's ready. Thank you, Producer Joe. Okay, so as mentioned at the top of the show, one... Yeah, I'm listening. Well, I, I know your ability to multitask. Okay. One... <laughs> Ready? One guy, two okay. stories. One guy, two stories. Yep. Okay. So one in his youth and then one in his 20s. And not related at all. So you don't need to like hold on to details from okay. either one, but just really, really, really interesting. And I, when I was, uh, you know, putting this together, I thought, honestly, it gave it more credence yeah. to have somebody who didn't have, you know, as opposed to like Maurice, like tons and tons of things happening, but just these two outstanding events. It almost made me think like, I, I think I'd believe you more huh. as opposed to having like all these like, and then this happened oh, and then I that see, happened, yeah. you know, like, yeah. uh, and even more so than one event, because it's like, if it were you and or I, yeah. and one thing happened and you were like, Lindsay, you're never going to believe what happened, but then nothing ever happens again. It's almost easier to write it off as like, you know, it really must've been my imagination. Yeah. But when something else happens, does that make you then go back and think like, Oh shit, that was probably very real what happened. Yeah. yeah I think so. That, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, let's let's talk to our friend Ben here. Hey Dan and Lindsay, absolutely love your podcast. Thank I found you. Scared to Death about a year and a half ago and became addicted. I've now listened to each episode at least twice, if not more. That's dedication. I love it. Anyways, I finally built up the courage to tell you guys my stories as to why I finally believe in the supernatural. Okay. I was never really a true believer in the supernatural when I was younger. I'd always been a huge fan. Listen, dude. I'm listening. Okay, I'll put him down. (laughs) I'll keep him in front of me. You're like a child with a new toy. Okay. This was kind of my fault. I was just going to say, this is entirely... Should I swap it out? No, no, I'll be good. good. Behave yourself? Yeah. Listen, if you can't behave yourself, I'm going to make you hold a crystal. Okay. Okay. I'd always been a huge fan of Halloween, but never believed any of the scary stories my friends would share with me. However, I began to believe in the supernatural after a chilling encounter I had when I was just 10 years old. A little backstory before I share what happened. My parents first bought our house in a place 
just north of Colorado Springs in 2002. The designer of the house was an old widow whose husband had passed away years before. This house, that we still live in, was supposed to be the widow's forever home. The woman was outraged with the final price on the home after it was completed and refused to pay for it. My parents, who adored this house, sent an offer in and got the house. The woman was furious about strangers moving into her dream home, but there was nothing she could do about it. So she upped and left, and we never heard anything about her after the paperwork was finalized. Now let's get into the story. I invited my friend Tanner over for a sleepover at my house two days before our birthday as we shared the same birthday. We were both super excited to turn 10 and to watch the first Insidious movie, which had just come out. We were both really into spoopy stuff. As we were hanging out, I was telling him about the old widow who was livid about not getting to live in her dream home. Tanner mentioned with worry in his face, Are you sure it was an old woman who tried to buy this place? Not anyone else? Hearing this story from my parents multiple times, I said, Yeah, for sure, man. She must have been an old cranky hag. I'm just glad that we got this house. Tanner looked terribly alarmed. He told me that his grandmother was a psychic and that she had some sixth sense that helped her communicate with and feel the paranormal beings around her. Tanner had learned how to somewhat communicate with beings not within our world and was able to feel their presence as well. He looked worried after I told him of the widow because he said that he felt something evil in my basement. I just made fun of him because I didn't believe in anything paranormal and I agreed to go to the basement just to humor him. My basement is essentially a very wide hallway with my bedroom to the left as you reach the final right turn at the bottom of the stairs and several doors going down the wide hallway. We walked downstairs towards the guest bedroom at the end of the hallway and checked inside. Nothing. I made fun of Tanner for trying to scare me and then we decided to play some video games on my new Xbox. As we sat in front of the TV right outside the supposedly haunted room, the Xbox Xbox turned itself off. Weird, I said. I'd only had it for a month. It's never shut off like this before. Ooh, maybe it's the spirit of the widow trying to scare us from mocking her. I taunted Tanner as my Xbox turned itself back on. Immediately, though, after mocking Tanner, the Xbox, the controllers, and the TV all turned itself off at once. I tried to rationalize how this could happen, but nothing quite made sense. Dude, don't make fun of her, Tanner shouted at me. You don't want to piss her off. I don't want her coming after us. Moving on. It's now April 8th, our birthday, and we invited our friend Josh to a sleepover at my house. We told him about the widow and how the Xbox just turned itself off all at once. He was a little bit spooked, but just as skeptical as I was. After cake and presents, we went downstairs to hang out in my room for the night. Amped up on sugar, we were fucking around in my room, telling scary stories and fighting each other as only young teen boys can do. As we began to get into bed for the night at about 12 midnight, we heard the guest room the guest bedroom door slammed shut. What was that? Josh said, going deeper into the covers. I don't know. Want to go see if it's the widow? I teased Josh. Tanner, Josh, and I slowly opened my door, which looked directly down the hall. As we opened the door, we all saw an older woman, probably in her late 60s, in a tattered white wedding dress staring at us from down the hall. There was something off about her and not just the fact that she was in my house. The longer I looked at her standing outside the guest bedroom, I began to realize she wasn't standing, rather floating, motionless. She also didn't have any eyes, but instead a dark void where her eyes should be. Fuck, there's no way that thing is real, right? I whispered to my friends. I don't know, said Josh, but I don't want to know if it is or isn't. And we slammed the door and ran right back to bed, hiding under the blankets. You saw an old lady, right? 
I asked Tanner. Yes, he screamed quietly so as to not wake my parents. Let's just stay here and not leave your room until sunrise, okay? I agree. There's no fucking way I'm leaving this bed tonight, Josh said with a shaky voice. I said to him, okay, okay, let's try and forget what happened and let's just go to bed. A couple hours passed when Tanner whispered in my ear, Ben, I have to pee. Can you stand outside and watch to make sure she doesn't come for me? Dazed, but understanding his concern, uh, yeah, yeah, just hurry up. We got up and I slowly opened the door and watched him walk towards the bathroom, his walking quickly turning to a sprint. The bathroom was adjacent to the guest room, literally two feet away from it. I was scared, but I didn't see the woman in white, so I became confused as to why Tanner was running. He finished and ran right back to my room. Why were you running? I didn't see the woman in white. Did you? I asked Tanner. His response, which still chills me to this day, was, Dude, I didn't see her, but something whispered right in my ear. I hesitated. I didn't really want to know what she said, but I had to ask. Well, what did she say? I asked nervously. He hesitated. She said, get out of my house. We both looked at each other for a moment, terrified, and both knew that we had to check just one last time to make sure this wasn't all in our heads. A bit of a Darren move, I know. I slowly opened the door and I saw her, the woman in white, pointing a bony, crooked, pale finger right at us. We slammed my door as fast as we could and kept it locked until the next morning. The next day, we decided to all individually draw a picture of what we had seen the night before and share it with each other just to make sure no one was making anything up. About 30 minutes later, we we ex- about 30 minutes later, we all drew the same thing. An old woman with massive dark sockets for eyes, wearing a tattered white dress that was flowing as if there was a calm summer breeze flowing through it with a rotten face and those damn hands that to this day I remember pointing at us in the dark of the night. After several years and some maturing, I lost my belief in the paranormal until I had an evening more terrifying than just the, I had an evening more terrifying just last summer when I was 20. God, that uh, the, uh, the drawing thing is smart where it's like um, in a perfect world when you, when you see something like that. I mean, I guess yes. it depends on the people's drawing abilities. But you, still, but you could still get it yeah, across. Yeah, you could get it across. You could like write notes off to the side like this is what I'm trying to draw. Um, but if you did that, if you didn't discuss it, like, yeah. like, oh my God, did you see that like lady or whatever? Right, that could mean anything. That could mean anything. But then before you give more details, if you're, if you're in a group, that's a really good idea. I love that. Everybody separate, write out, you know, uh, either if you can draw, draw it, or if you can't, be really descriptive with your, you know, uh, uh, with what you write. With your adjectives. With your adjectives. With your words. With words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then compare notes. Right. That's a really smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that whispering. Yeah, I, get out of my house. Mm-hmm. So I, my guess is that since they moved into that house, she that died. old lady died. Yeah, and now she's come back, and she's like, "Motherfuckers, this is mine." Mm-hmm. That that running that little boy's, you know, like sleepover, and then like yep. running down the hall uh, when he was like, when he was like, uh, like, why were you running? I wouldn't need to see or hear anything to run. Like when I'm in that mindset. <laughs> right. And, and you know, like the bathroom is what, two feet away from like this place where this thing has been like felt or spotted. Right. Um, just that alone, I'm pew, just zipping in there and, you know, flipping all that and then pew, just like zipping back because once you start to, what, even if you don't see anything, I've yeah. done, I, do, I do that now. I, I was just going to say that. That's already how you handle the bathroom when you're uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Like, because you're like, I think it's, oh my God, it's something behind me. I don't turn around to look to see if something's behind me. I just move forward faster. Okay, when you're going to use the restroom at night yeah. in our house, yeah. when you reach the, I mean, it's like five steps from our bedroom door. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do Okay, questions. 
when you exit our bedroom, do you turn on the hallway light that's like right in front of us, like in my office? No, because I don't want to wake you up if I have mm. to, if, if I have to okay. use it in the middle of the night. Okay. No. Do you, when you get to the bathroom door, do you reach your hand in and turn the light on first, or do you go in and turn it on, or do you not turn the light on I, at all? I turn it on as I'm going in. Oh, interesting. I reach in, turn the light on, then go in. I don't want to be surprised mm. by anything. I don't want to turn on the light and simultaneously see something, and I'm already in this bathroom. Ooh. I reach in, turn it on, wait a second. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't system. do it that cautiously because because I like to just keep moving again. I don't. I don't want to be standing there because what I I worry more about the basement than the bathroom. Oh. I want to get in the bathroom as soon as possible because I'm not worried about the bathroom. Oh, I am. I'm worried about the basement. Interesting. I there's like some little light down there, some part of I don't know, like a detector car. There's some, or maybe it's on the uh, the PlayStation. But there's a few little lights that I can see no matter what, and I just don't like. They can look like little eyes. Okay, okay. And so once my brain goes to that place, I'm like, I just have to get away from that. I, I picture something coming up the stairs after me. Okay, thanks for that. Mm-hmm. That's nice. <laughs> I haven't had that thought yet. That's what I think about all the time. In the oh my night. gosh. I only think about, I think about going in the bathroom and if I, if I wait till mm. I'm in there to turn the light on, I'm going to definitely see something in the mirror. So I want the light on so I can't see anything dark mm. and ominous in the mirror when I get in there. So we have a pretty sizable mirror. Well, now I have more things for more things to make you worry about. Yeah, sure. When you go out of our, the way it's all set up, when yeah. you go right before you go in the bathroom, yeah. there could be something towards the laundry room coming around the corner for you. There could be something coming up the stairs for yeah, you. Yeah, that I know. There could be something coming down from above, like for you okay. that you couldn't see. And there could be something coming out of the bedroom for you. So I'm, you, I'm you really can't be safe. Or there could be something in the bathroom. There's so many places oh, where man. something that you can't see could be coming for you. I have a fun ah! fear. Jesus. I have a fun fear, guys. Yeah. That was it. No. <laughs> Good what, job, Lindsay, Joe. what if you reached in and there was already a hand on the light switch? I know. I know. I do have that thought sometimes. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, what if I reach in and something <sighs> puts its hand on top of my hand? Or like, That's what if? That's not fun. I know. It'd be terrible. Terrible. So I try to do it with one finger. <laughs> When you're out of town yeah. and I'm home by myself, I um, leave both hallway lights on, mm. and then I close our bedroom door. Yep. So they're on all fucking night long. All the alarms are set. Yeah. And I sleep with my Himalayan salt lamp light on. So if I have to get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, it's not that dark in our room. And okay. then when I open the door, it's already light, and I have nothing to be afraid of. That's smart. <laughs> it is smart. Mm -hmm. So if we need to start doing that, yeah. just for us, just for regular... no. I mean, I'm not opposed to it. Maybe, uh, maybe we just need night lights in our. And that's what I'm going to do. Why I don't I never, want. I don't want our room lit up at all. I didn't say in our room, bro. Okay. Hallways. All right, bro. All right, bro. <laughs> um. Ah. Uh, okay. Maybe. Yeah. That would that would ease a lot of tension. But then, the hallway light only goes. You know, it's not like a. Lot you can of put it in every socket, and there are pretty bright ones. No, nah, that makes it even creepier. No, it's not. There's always shadows around them. I'd rather have it all dark. You don't know anything about night lights. I mean, in the room, they don't light up. The, I don't want the room, house lit up that much. Why? The door's closed mm. to our bedroom. What do you care? That's, but then you see whatever's, whatever's down there. <laughs> if there's something, I don't even think there's something. But if it were to be down there, then you see it. I don't want it to see it that much more crisply. No, that's the point. The light fades it out. Like, you can't see it because it's... You don't know. Yes, I do. Mm. Why do we don't know the rules about why these Why do monsters? things only show up at night? Sometimes they don't. We've told stories where they show up during the day. It's mostly at night. It's still, it's still at night. It sounds like you're afraid of the dark. Nope. I'm no. I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm comforted by the dark because it hides the creatures. No, you're not though, because you're like, oh, I don't know. I'm scared. I can't see what's down there. I see two two things right. that are glowing like eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, that wouldn't be happening anymore. Maybe. God, I'm so smart. Or if it's all lit up, then I just see something sitting on the couch down there. Well, maybe they're enjoying a nice TV show. Until their head turns around backwards. Have you? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Too much. All right, well, do you want to hear the second tale that Ben sent in that yes. took him back to his childhood beliefs? I and do. Confirmed? I like this two-parter, yes. I know. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really great because they're connected but not. Um, okay, so I do, this is actually like uh, based on a true story. Like he, Ben goes to visit the site of a terrible tragedy, much like your prison story. Okay. Um, but this is like, it's so sad. Uh, and he lays it out too, but just as like a little precursor in case somebody thinks they can't handle this or doesn't want to. Uh, a group of young kids on a school bus yeah. going on a field trip and they're going through um, these tunnels and huh? a tunnel collapses and everybody oh on the school oh bus boy. suffocates and dies. Oh my God. Okay. That's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's okay. a real thing. So, like, not necessarily like a trigger warning. It's just upsetting because it's really of sad. Okay. It was the summer of 2018. I was just a couple years into college, and me and some friends wanted to go to this supposedly haunted road in Colorado Springs. A little background on this road, Gold Camp Road. This dirt road has three tunnels, but supposedly seven if you know how to find them. The road is kind of close to Broadmoor, if you're at all familiar with the area. In 1987, there was a school bus full of elementary children that were going on a field trip. As they were driving up Gold Camp Road and going through the third tunnel, part of the tunnel collapsed, suffocating and crushing everyone on board. It killed all of the kids on that bus. Since the tragedy, they have gated and closed off the tunnel. And since the early 2000s, many people have gone back to see these tunnels and try and get get a fright. Growing up in Monument, there was a good amount of dark shit going on. A guy murdered a person on a mountain near town with a hatchet, attempted double homicide right next to the high school, and lots, I mean lots, of deaths by suicide. I'm not trying to sound like this is a prideful thing. There was just a disturbing amount every year. I think seven students was the most in one year, just fucking terrible. With all this shit going on uh, at the time... Mixed with my friends and I being obsessed with spoopy stuff, we figured that Gold Camp Road would be the perfect spot to get scared. According to local lore, you should be able to drive right through the first tunnel, no problem. Once you get to the second tunnel, you're supposed to turn off your car lights and put your car in neutral for like 15 seconds. If you are brave enough to do this at night, many have claimed that you can feel pushing on your car and you'll see tiny little handprints on the outside of your car after you leave the tunnel. Uh. The third tunnel you have to hike to, it's about a mile to get there, if you're ballsy enough to go for it. My girlfriend Carmen, my friend Markin, and our friend Katie and I made the journey. We got up uh, We got up to the start of the patchy dirt road and began. We went through the first tunnel, talking about how we didn't even know if we were going to see or hear anything. We got to the second tunnel at about 10 p.m. No other cars were around. We put the car in neutral and turned off the lights. We didn't feel any pushing on the car, so we just kept going. Once we finally got to a spot where we could park, we hopped out and started walking up the closed-off part of the road to get to the third tunnel. About 20 minutes of walking, I kept hearing shit behind us, and I yelled out, Hello? to see if anyone else was walking up the trail. No answer. Another five minutes, and we all heard a loud snap. We looked to the right of us in the trees and and saw two glowing eyes hovering about eight inches off the ground. Oh, thank God, I said to everyone. It's just a mountain line. These cats, <laughs> these cats are not super common but uh, to see, but very common to hear and feel in this part of Colorado. However, growing up hunting, you know that you could often be stalked by one as well. They're pretty harmless, though, so we weren't too spooked. We yelled at the mountain line and heard it run off and continued walking towards the third tunnel. 
After the mountain line, we swore we kept hearing things, and a couple of us, myself included, were trying to talk the group out of going into the third tunnel. My buddy Markin kept pushing us forward, saying that it must be close. After another 40 minutes or so of hiking, we rounded a bend and saw the third tunnel just 200 yards out. We also saw a couple walking back down, which was relieving after the mountain line had given us such a scare. We talked to the couple, asking if there was anything interesting in the third tunnel. Nah, the girl said. I mean, it was cool and all, but we didn't see or feel anything paranormal. We still wanted to see for ourselves, however, so we said goodbye to our new friends and made it into the gated tunnel. When I say this tunnel is gated, I mean it. This gate was fucking massive, and there was just a little spot where you could barely squeeze through to get inside the tunnel. I let Markin and the ladies go ahead of me because I'm such a gentleman and not at all because I was getting spooked. We walked down a bit of rubble and into the tunnel. The ceilings were probably 15 feet high and it was close to 30 feet wide. It was way bigger than I had pictured. As I began to walk down, I saw all this graffiti covering the place. And as I looked at the artwork on the walls, I heard a weird metallic sound as I took another step. I looked down where I stepped and saw a rusted piece of metal. You guys, you guys, come check this out. Markin and I tried to lift the piece of metal. No luck. I moved some rocks and dirt, and then I froze. After clearing some shit off of it, I realized it wasn't a piece of metal I was standing on. It was the roof of the school bus. We were literally standing on top of where the tunnel had collapsed. It didn't seem real hearing it from people, but I knew that we should not be here. This was somehow wrong. If there were spirits in this tunnel, I'm sure they would not be happy that that we were standing on top of where they had died. I didn't want to ruin the mood of the night, however, so I decided to just walk away and check out some more graffiti on the roof of the tunnel. I was walking around the tunnel, intrigued by the artwork, until I heard a little hee-hee-hee-hee. It was like a very faint child's laughter that sounded like it was surrounding me, but still quiet enough that I swore I was the only one that could hear it. I screamed and turned around and saw Katie, who looked as petrified as I did. What did you just hear, Katie? I know you heard something. I I tried to stay calm. Ugh, it sounded like a child laughing. What the fuck was that? I didn't hear anything, said Markin. Me either, said Carmen, both looking confused. We told the others that we were leaving right now and that they had to come with us. They all climbed through the gate and I was the last one out. I turned back to look at the tunnel, making sure that there wasn't a kid following me through the gate, squeezed through the hole and got out of that hell tunnel. We made it back to the car in a flurry, speed walking all the way there. Katie and I were trying to figure out what the fuck we had just heard. It was about one in the morning once we got back to Carmen's house. I was relieved to be off that mountain and back home where there were lots of lights and lots of people. As we got out of the car, we froze. In the light, we saw very tiny handprints all over the car. We did not limit ourselves on the drinks that night, and the lights definitely stayed on until the morning. Ben. Eee. Why is a tiny handprint so creepy? <laughs> I know. So fucking creepy. And I had a weird thought on that one of that before. Like, what if like, when, okay, a tragedy like that occurs, everybody knows, you know, what happened rather than like ghosts. What if like some other force just presents itself as, you know, oh, if, yeah. if, if like a family, you know, passes, it's like, or, or like, or like, like the widow, like right. a woman, then like the spirit takes on that form. But what if it's not a ghost? What if it just like is presenting itself as like letting you make that assumption? I don't know. That's where my brain went with like the, that little he, 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 like what right. if that's not a kid spirit, but something just presenting itself. Yeah. Which yeah. is scarier to me. I have two little pictures for you that Ben okay. sent along. Okay. Joseph. So that's the gated tunnel. And that's like, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to see 
here, but that black, like in the middle, can you see yeah, the, the yeah, pulse? Yeah. So, like, I mean, wow. I don't really know how the fuck they got in there. They must have like squeezed in on the side. Right. Yeah. Without like zooming in. But yeah, I, I bet there, yeah, I bet there is some way on that. It looks like on the, from our view on the right. Yeah. 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 yeah there's a way to get in there. Yes. Man, that's crazy. Isn't that's it? crazy that the bus is still in there, but I guess like, why would you take it out? You, I mean, you, it's so sad. I mean, you, so you would remove the remains. But if you, you could, it, to me, it's sort of like a mind collapsing. You might not be able to get it out. The, the actual bus, yeah. But, yeah I bet, but, but I bet you could get in there probably and remove remains inside well, of it. I, mean, I don't know. I, well, he said the bus was like buried. Right, right. But if he can get to the roof of it. I know, but then think about all the excavating they'd have to do to well, get. they would have to do a lot of work. But I don't know if they I, would do it. Hmm, I don't know. I think they would. But who knows? Who knows? Know. And one more picture for yeah. you. Um, and that's oh, just. okay. Yep. So, you know, that's the second tunnel. Yeah. That you go in, turn your car into yep. neutral, and just wait. And during the day, like, ah, eh, fine, whatever. But like at, at night, night, yeah. I mean, there are no lights. It's very narrow. Mm-hmm. I know it doesn't look so tight. So it's one car at a time, obviously, right. in each direction. And with your lights off, that's uh, terrifying. What if you couldn't get your lights back on? Well, I, I guess know. I guess the other lights would see you. So sorry. Yeah. And we're yeah. both so burpy. What's going I'm on? I'm always like that. I feel like like now it's oh man. Yeah. It's, it's the thing. Well, um, this uh, Gold Camp Road, Ben was saying, just like outside of the story, that there are so many stories. And he, he requested that you check it out. Okay, he said there's okay. so many. I can, oh, oh, I, yeah, I'm yeah, right yeah, here. Yeah, I can yeah. tell you later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and actually, before we move to the end, um, hey, Joe, could, could you have Logan grab my phone off of my desk and just bring it in here to me? I, I mean, I don't know. Thanks, Thank Logan. Logie. All right. Okay, well, while you get that pulled up, I will start with my Annabelle's. How about that? Okay, that sounds perfect. I'd like to thank the following Annabelle's for making our donation to New Orleans Community Fridges possible. Richard Hamlin, Gerardo Lozano, uh, Kelly Raymond Hayes, Jessica Zahirak, Autumn Clifton, Austin Williams, Kelly Lang, Hilary Thavian, Thevian, <laughs> Amanda Wilson, Ashley and Mark Vansel, Michelle Harden, Landon Moses, Steph Coker, Brooke Ring, Lauren Ring, Robert Esquivel, Rebecca Forbes, Lisa Quick, Jody Cardinal, Nick Toos, Shauna Hanseld, Angela Shaw. Oh man, fucking Dave. Fucking Dave. Uh, it was like F A H space K I N G, <laughs> fucking Dave. Emily Vasquez. Uh, Beth, Steffi, and Danielle Hayes. Danielle Hayes. When you said Steph and then started with a C, my brain immediately went Curry. Steph I was, Curry. I was, I was picturing Steph Curry. He's not a huge only, fan. Not only listening, but like wanting to shout out, I, which is very funny to me. That would be really funny. <laughs> LeBron James. I, w- I was just going to say, I would love it if mm-hmm. we have like a whole laundry list of like celebrities. A lot of NBA players, yeah. Brad Pitt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, like, we would just like mm-hmm. really go for it. Mm-hmm. Ed and Lorraine Warren. <laughs> Even though they're dead. <laughs> it's from the grave, Dan. <laughs> Uh, they like, can come back, you know. True, true. I'd like to thank the following Annabelle's Laura Darnell, Bam Bear, uh, Aaron Richard, Victor Garza, Wicked Wanda, Monica Miraflor, John Alexander Genson. Oh, boy. I like the, I like the phonetic, this uh, this following Annabelle. Oh, I know this and one. It is needed. I'm guessing this is a Greek name. Uh, just by the way, Nick is spelled too. Nick, and then it's uh, Keolaokaleni. Or maybe Hawaiian, actually. It's Hawaiian. Is it Hawaiian? He's Hawaiian. Oh, okay. Uh, ke, keola I, Okalani. I think he is a they. Sorry. They are Hawaiian. They are Hawaiian. Oh, okay, gotcha. Ray uh, Ray 
Um, it's Ramos. My brain automatically wanted to go Romanos, Ray Romano. Ray Ram- uh, oh my God, it's Another Ray celebrity, Romano. Ray Romano. There's so many celebrities on uh, this show. Ray Ramos, David Crawford. Dave, David Cross, of course. There David it is. Cross, Matt Batty, Gustavo Flores, Karen Grayhall. Karen Grayhall sounds like the name of someone in some Victorian era horror show, I think. So Grayhall. Can you say her name? Lady Grayhall. Lady Grayhall. Uh, Carolee Herb. Um, John Hutchinson, Jared Ligari, Lacey Montgla, Kirk C. Hulick, Andrew Poliska, Haley Sellett, McKenna Phillips. I think that's one of the members of Wilson Phillips. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's got to be right. Uh, Laura Lacey Caballero, <laughs> Ashley Sherman, and then Andrea and Alyssa Garcia. Nice. Uh, last week or two weeks ago, we were doing these, and mm-hmm. you had Jasmine something or another. Yeah. But you said Jasmine. Oh, did I really? <laughs> yeah. And Jasmine. She, and she emailed me, and she was She's like, like, "What?" She said she just almost like fell out of her chair laughing. She was at work <laughs> and was like, "From now on, she is Jasmine." Jasmine. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "God, I'm like, I wonder My if my I... name is Jasmine." <laughs> well, uh, there, like, I knew a woman when I lived in LA who was Claudia, not Claudia. It's spelled the same, but Claudia, and like from now until forever, anyone I meet. Claudia, yeah. I immediately want to go Claudia. Oh my gosh! When I when I worked uh, at Playboy, around me, Andrea, my co-host, if someone said Andrea, she would lose her mind. It's like, but it's all spelled the same. I know exactly, but I'm like, it's spelled exactly the same. And if they don't know, but she would just get, she was very sensitive. Oh man, to people saying Andrea. People get my name wrong all the time. I have a, you get called lines a lot. Well, that's because auto or lens. Okay, right, but I don't care if people call me Linz because it's just like a shortened version of Lindsay. Yeah, right, but it's like it is a little bit weird for me because I'm like, yeah, but. Like, we're not buddies, yeah. so if when you hey, call Lins. me that, it's yeah. kind of weird. Um, I do get, like, a lot of Leslie, though. Le- oh, interesting. People will mess up my name and call me Leslie. I'm like, okay, yep, that's an option, too. Ding Dong. I've heard a lot of people call you Ding Dong, which oh. I'm like, it's not even spelled the same. That's so weird. Why would they jump to Ding <laughs> Come on. Oh, no, Ding Dong, you said? Yeah. No. Come on, Lulu. Come on, Lulu. You're devastated. Uh, you're devastated. You're devastated Ding Dong. <laughs> I don't know, fucking throw a crystal at you. Can I please do my spooky shout outs? Yeah. To Cole from your mom, dad, Haley, and Zach. Happy 22nd birthday. We love you and we miss you. Oh, he's a big fan stationed in Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for your service. Oh, uh, yeah. To Jenny from Deja. Happy 40th birthday. You're amazing. To Josie from T-Tits. <laughs> happy birthday, my sweet pe- sweet peeper. I also spelled sweet wrong. I wrote sweat, S-W-E-T. All sweat peeper. Oh. Old sweaty beaver. To Mark from Mike, your always spooked boyfriend. Happy birthday, honey bear. To Jim from your daughter, Jordan. Happy birthday. To Cassie from Mike. Happy birthday. And to Chloe, a.k.a. Poodle, a.k.a. Baby Newt Steak. From your mom, Carrie Jo. Happy 21st birthday. Baby Newt Steak. There is a oh, story a behind one. that one. Oh, I love it. They're probably time suckers. <laughs> probably. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, that's our oh, show. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith for the Annabelle phone delivery today. And uh, Liz Hernandez for their work on social media. And to Logan again for running badmagicmerch.com. And thank you to Joe Paisley for producing and directing, Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation, Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails, book editor Drew Atana for helping format the listener stories every week. And thanks to producer Olivia Lee for finding the second story I told about the exorcism. Uh, I found the first since I promised to do one to the uh, Times of audience, you know, set in that New Mexico. Oh my God, uh, prison. Enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. I hope you were scared to death. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness. 